0: Thank you, Rachel. Um, yeah, you know, the church is far from perfect, but uh, just nothing as beautiful as the church, I think, and so praise God for that. Um, it's, it's our privilege this morning to hear, um, our, again, our guest speaker, who's not a guest, uh, Danny Chen, has been here uh, several times over the years. He used to, to be here, um, but uh, it's a blessing to hear from him as he's come to share God's word with us. Uh, Danny Chen works with InterVarsity for 10 years, I'm reminded, 10 uh, long but very quick years, I think, at the same time. And so he's here. Uh, he is uh, the area director, kind of covering Central Florida area. Um, just uh, wanting to help students love Jesus and to share that love with other students and faculty there in, in campuses around uh, this area. And so we're blessed to have him here. Um, yeah, he's a, he is a man's man. Um, he, you know, he's a lover of protein, of surfing, of Uh, Of God, most of all, and so uh, what a blessing to have him uh, share with us. And so, let's uh, give him a hand as he comes to share God's word.
1: Good morning, how are you? Man, I'm excited to be here. Uh, There's a lot of memories here. Uh, I've been here. Uh, a couple of times over the last month, because of weddings and things like that, and I was reminded how DL actually officiated our wedding too, like seven years ago. So lots of fun memories, lots of friends here. So it always feels like a homecoming, coming back over here. So uh, yeah, it's great to see your warm, welcoming faces, and also just grateful for for DL being able to share his pulpit with me this morning. So uh, can I just pray for us as we kind of enter into uh, this next part of our worship service? Um, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for Uh, this morning. uh, We thank you for the sunshine outside. We thank you for uh, the ways that it reminds us of your faithfulness, that it continues to come up every single day. And uh, we just ask that you would help us enter into your word this morning. Uh, And I pray over myself first, Lord, as I long for your kingdom, as I live in this season of my life, uh, just feeling this deep longing for you. uh, Would you allow that to uh, guide me and, uh, and transcend the, the words that, I, that you've prepared for me to share this morning. And I ask that uh, for, for all those who are here this morning, Lord, uh, may whatever it is that is about to come out of my mouth be nothing more than a, uh, a gift that is from you, so, or nothing less than a gift that's from you. So uh, we thank you, we love you, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, when I was in college uh, many moons ago, uh, I uh, went to a school. I l- love that uh, Rachel, was it? Uh, North Carolina, Chicago. I'm from Chicago as well. Went to school in North Carolina. So went to a school in North Carolina uh, on a coastal like town uh, called Wilmington. Uh, it's a really beautiful coastal town where uh, basically all the Nicholas Sparks movies were made. Uh, for those of you who look confused right now, Uh, find, like, a white friend and ask them who Nicholas Sparks is, and they'll tell you all about it. Uh, But uh, if you like, like, it's like the, it's like the southern, like, white version of Korean dramas, right? So, um... So, it's a really beautiful, romantic, scenic area that I went to school, uh, a school called no- uh, University of North Carolina Wilmington. I was studying marine biology there. Now, just south of that town, about 20 miles south of that town, is an area, it's another city called Fort Fisher. Now, Fort Fisher is a very kind of nature-y kind of place. It's on the southern tip of the strip of land where the river, uh, Cape Fear River, kind of meets the Atlantic Ocean. So, uh, so um I I used to go down there oftentimes to kind of explore, to hang out. Like I said, I was a marine biology major. I would go and wade in the water and just catch different things and being a total, like, science nerd down there. Uh, But I remember this one particular Saturday afternoon, I went out to Fort Fisher, and and I uh, discovered this, like, interesting, like, uh, part that I had never noticed before. I have a picture for us. So the first picture I have is uh, you'll see this, like, lone tree on a hill right here. I'll share it with the first uh first service earlier that uh, I did never noticed this until like this morning that it kind of looks like that tree from my sassy girl for those of you that have been around and watched that right Uh, but uh, on this hill on the other side of this hill is this trail that actually leads into the water you can show the next picture and basically what it is is a uh, what you call a breakwater which is a uh, rock structure a pile of rocks that builds a wall that that is there to dampen all the like wave activity. so that uh, because uh, Fort Fisher is kind of a ferry port so it's where these ships will carry these uh, vehicles down to the next town. So, so there's this breakwater that jets out for a couple miles out into the water, and seemingly it's connected to more landmass on the other side. Uh, so, you know, obviously, as I saw this, I got super uh, curious. I wanted to explore, so I started to kind of walk down this path, wanting to see what was on the other side. Now, um, it was kind of getting late. And parts of this wall, as I mentioned, it's not built for walking on, right? So parts of this wall, wall, because of weathering over the years, have kind of crumbled and fell into the water. Uh, And it was getting dark out, and I was by myself. And uh, before kind of like going too much further, I was like, probably not a good idea if I just keep going by myself. Because if something happens to me, then nobody would know, right? So I went home that night, but thinking that I must come back here and see what was on the other side. So that night, I uh, started doing some research at home. This was... Back in the days when like Google Earth first came out, so I was just playing around, zooming in, zooming out, checking out what was over there. And it turns out that there is actually uh, another island that is connected to the other side of this rock wall. And that island was only accessible by boats, which as a Port College student, me nor any of my friends had. uh, Or uh, you can walk on this rock wall uh, during low tide in order to get over there. Uh, Now, on the island, there was no development, nothing. It was just like this wild land that is home to a lot of seabirds and other sea creatures that take refuge in the vegetations. Uh, And uh, believe it or not, this island actually had a name. When you zoomed in far enough on Google Maps, you will see that this island is actually named No Name Island. Like somebody actually took the efforts to name the island No Name. So I don't really understand. But uh, I was like, this is awesome. This is wild. I got to go explore No Name Island. No Name Island, like nobody lives there. Nobody's probably been there. I got to go do this. So the next day, it was Sunday, after church, I got uh, a group of my buddies together. Uh, It was myself and my buddy Doug and my friend Tim and our other friend Tim. Uh, We always call him the other Tim because he was, like, less good-looking as the first Tim. Super messed up, right? (laughs) But uh, so it was Danny and Doug and Tim and Tim. We went down there, and uh, we drove down there, and I started casting vision for them. I was like, look, I know we're just, like, four dudes in college uh, but I found this island, it's connected by this rock wall, and we may just be four dudes right now, but if you come with me and if we trek through this rock wall and get to the other island, to the other side of the, the rock wall and get on the island, we will be four dudes no more. We will become four men, right? So, uh, so super like inspiring stuff. So, so uh, I drove down there, we parked the car at the ditch, like at the end where the road kind of ends, uh, and then we started on this rock wall. And as you can see, uh, it starts out kind of nice and wide and pretty sturdy, uh, but the, the further you go, the narrower and narrower it gets, and it's less smooth, less, less sturdy. Uh, and and parts of the wall, like I mentioned, have broken off, so it's kind of like jaggedy. If you can show that other picture uh, where you can see, yeah, so you can see that like parts of it. You kind of have to like hop over it, and you know there's a bunch of algae growing on it, uh, so it's kind of slippery. It's jaggedy. Uh, And not only were there physical barriers to this, like, conquest that we have, right, but time was also racing against us. What do I mean by that? The tide, that's right, low tide, right? So we were out there on an afternoon during an incoming tide. So what this means is that when the tide completely fills in, much of this wall will actually be completely underwater, uh so uh so it was you know it just adds to the adventure right so we start uh, trekking along we slowly inched towards the island uh and after about an hour and a half of climbing and hopping and walking uh scraping our knees and getting our shoes wet we finally made it to the shores of no name island you can show a picture of that that's the aerial view of the island right there beautiful place right so we were super excited, we were super proud of ourselves. We high-fived each, high-fived each other, and uh, you know we started exploring the island. We wanted to see what was on there. saw a bunch of wildlife t- taking refuge in all the sparse vegetations that are all over this island. It was a beautiful day out. It was one of those spring days where the sun was out, but it wasn't hot. Right, it wasn't too cold. It was just—it was just right. There was like this gentle breeze that was like blowing by. You can smell the salt in the air. Uh, it's just a beautiful place, right? And uh, and we wanted to stick around and just hang out all day, right? But but we knew we couldn't, right? Because tide was filling in, and if we don't get a, uh, get on get our move on soon, the only way back to the mainland will be completely gone, right? But before we climbed back onto this wall to kind of make our way back, we decided, right, as four. Men, uh, we wanted to make our, make our marks, leave our names, right, uh, on this island. The problem is, though, we didn't bring, like, a flag to, like, stake into the ground, like Neil Armstrong did on the moon, right? We didn't bring a plaque with our names engraved on there. We also didn't have any, like, knives or tools to, like, vandalize the trees and carve our names on there, right? Don't do that, by the way. <laughs> uh, we were young, right? But uh, some of you guys can see where this is going. Guess what we did? Four boys trying to become men. That's right, Yep. We decided that we were going to pee on this island, right? We decided that we are going to literally leave a piece of ourselves on this island. So it was so funny because this was back in the days before you had smartphones, so you couldn't, like, just take pictures. We had those, like, uh, disposable cameras that you have to, like, wind down, click, wind down, click, right? So we literally, like, took turns taking pictures of each other from the back, right? Taking peas, uh, uh, taking our, our pea on, on the island. It was so funny. We were laughing, we were giggling. Pea was just going everywhere. And, uh, you know, after that, uh, finally, uh, we, be, we got back onto the wall and, and made the same treacherous journey and made it back to the island. Feeling super accomplished and proud of ourselves, we decided that as four newfound meh, men, we were gonna go out and celebrate over uh, chicken wings. Because there's nothing more manly to us at the time than ripping meat off of bones to celebrate our accomplishments. Um, This is where our toxic masculinity began to be uh, bred, right? Uh, But uh, the question I want to ask us, though, uh, from that story is that, isn't it strange that there's kind of like this innate human desire of feeling a need to make a name for ourselves? Like, whatever we do, wherever we trek through in life... Isn't it strange that we feel this need to leave our mark somewhere, to put our names on things, put our names on buildings, uh, to somehow make the world remember us somehow? And I think at the core of this, this is actually not a bad desire, right? At the core of this, I think this is a deep longing that everybody has of this longing to be known, a longing to be known, to know that somehow because of the way we've lived our lives that we had mattered somehow to the world. Right, So the question I have for you guys is what is that for you? What is it that you want to be known by? When you think about all the the hopes and dreams and plans and future aspirations that you have, uh, or perhaps like reputations or legacies that you want to leave behind, uh, accomplishments that you want to be remembered by, Uh, Maybe it's uh, even at a deeper level, right? For those of us have been kind of in a spiritual community, right? What if it's uh, you know uh, some kind of moral values that you want to be remembered by? Some kind of uh, faithfulness or your devout faith, your uh, devotion, your spiritual influence over others. What are those things? What are the things? Uh, the deepest dreams and longings and, and hopes and aspirations, moral values that you want to be remembered by. And what is it that you are doing day in and day out uh, as you envision yourself nurturing and growing uh, and planning for those things to come true for you? What are those things? Think about that and kind of hold it with you because we're going to talk about it a little bit more. But uh, this morning we're going to look at a story that's recorded both in the moral values that you want to be remembered by. And what is, uh, in your bulletins you will see that the sermon titled this morning uh, is titled Christmas in June, the unsanitized nativity story through Jesus. Right, so... Um, The reason why I wanted to look at this, uh, particularly the story, this Christmas story through Joseph, is because he too, Joseph too, had at one point dreamed about what his life would perhaps look like uh, and also uh, how everything changed when God actually opened his mouth to speak. And through this, my hope this morning is that we would become open uh, to see how God might actually want to radically change our lives and maybe what kind of responses uh, that he might be calling us to. Cool? So I'm going to read the passage for us. You can follow along. uh, And uh, I'm going to be reading out of the Luke account first and then the Matthew account. So from Luke, is going to be uh, uh, Luke uh, chapter 2, 1 through 7, and Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25. So hear the word of the Lord here, starting with Luke. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken Birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So now, same story, right? But recorded in Matthew and uh, kind of told in a different narrative, right? Matthew 1 18, it says this This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, For a little indirect communication, right? This means that before they were able to come together, you know what I'm saying? So, before they came together, um, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David... When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So what's happening here? Essentially, we got two different narratives that's describing the same event, right? Both these passages are talking about Uh, the birth of Jesus and kind of the who, what, when, where, how surrounding it, right? Uh, But these two accounts were kind of different in some of the ways that uh, it it, it centered itself around the events of the day, right? Uh, Now, uh, both passages started with a title and a character, right? So in the Luke account, it started with this character, Caesar Augustus, right? Says so in those days, he was uh, issuing this uh, decree for a census, right? In the Matthew account, it, stout, it started with Jesus the, the Messiah, right? This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about, right? Now, though both passages were both describing the birth of Jesus, the event that was at the central of these stories were actually different, Right? In the Luke account, if you paid attention, you will see that it was centered around the census that was issued by Augustus, right? Taking count of the people that he ruled. So in this story, in the Luke account, in this story, Caesar Augustus was kind of like the main player uh, that's dictating the narrative. And uh, Joseph and Mary, there were nothing more than just a grain of sand in somebody else's sandbox, right? Right? Now, in contrast, in the Matthew account, though, this was centered around the supernatural conception that was about to absolutely mess everything up, right? In this story, the main player, instead of being an earthly ruler, was actually the Holy Spirit, right? As the Holy Spirit was kind of conducting what was happening here. So the Holy Spirit was the main player, and Joseph was not just an ordinary man, but he was a man who was specifically chosen strategically for a very specific task. Are you guys with me? Right? So, uh, so, so... In the tension of these two competing kingdoms, right, where Joseph is just a grain of sand in a conquered land versus Joseph being a God-chosen man for a specific important job, in the tension of these two competing kingdoms is where our story begins. And I like to spend the rest of this morning uh, kind of unpacking this pas- these passages using three specific questions uh, that I want to use to drive out the main point of kind of this uh, uh, um, unusual Christmas story through the life of Joseph, right? And you will see in your bulletin, you can kind of follow along. But the first question I want to ask for us this morning is whose authority will you live under? Whose authority will you live under? If you reflect on both passages, you will notice that Joseph was a man under authority, right? The passages tell us that Joseph was not only a law-abiding citizen to his ruler, but also to his religion. How do we see that? You see, in the Luke account, Joseph was under the authority of his emperor, right, Caesar Augustus. There was this call that required him to travel to his hometown uh, to register for the census. Now, the question is, why, why would there be a census in a time like this? We live in a time where censuses are taken all the time right? Uh, It's a process in which the government takes count of who's around and what's kind of the demographic represented in the communities that we live in, right? But back in a day like this where there's kind of like this totalitarian, like empire, imperialistic setting, uh, a census was most likely taken so that those who are actually in control can maintain control, right? The ruler of the land needed to know who exactly it is that lives in their occupied land and how many of them were there. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the Holocaust when you learned about it, you know, during uh, school or something, right? That Jewish people during World War II were being rounded, bu- rounded up by Nazi Germany, and they were sent to concentration camps. Uh, and, and when they were there, they were given these striped uniforms, right? And on the uniforms, there's usually some kind of insignia, right? The insignia, oftentimes it's a star of David or, or some kind of symbol that represents that this is a Jewishly, ethnic, ethnically Jewish person, Right? Uh, And instead of having their names or anything stitched on there, what was on their uniform? Numbers. That's right. I see some of you guys saying that, right? Numbers, right? Because this is literally the ultimate stripping of one's dignity and identity when their whole being is reduced down to just a number. Now, Joseph and Mary here weren't necessarily being rounded up to be exterminated, as we know what happened in World War II, right? But the reality, though, is that they were living as ethnic minorities under an oppressive regime. And even at such an inopportune timing, Joseph was still obedient to that system, right? What do I mean by that? He was with a woman who was in her late-term pregnancy, right? So this should tell us that Joseph was clearly under the authority of his ruler. Only then would he then be willingly taking this 80-mile journey, which, by the way, is the distance between Nazareth and Bethlehem. That's the length of three marathons, right? With a woman uh, who was pregnant and and traveling by foot, Right? There's, there, there was no Uber back then, right? Uh, so this was traveling by foot um, in order to submit to this uh, mandate of his, of his emperor. So that's one way that he's under authority, right? Another way that he's under authority is that Joseph was under the authority of the Jewish religious establishment at the time. Right? In the Matthew account, we will see that it says that uh, uh, Joseph was faithful to the law, right? And what did the law of the time would say in a situation like this? If you guys are familiar with, which most of you guys would be, right, a highly shame-based culture, which is very similar to those that come from East Asian backgrounds, right, this is a highly shame-based culture. And, and the law of this religious establishment would have said that a woman like Mary, a not-yet-married woman like Mary, had no business being found pregnant, Right? culturally and societally and religiously she would have been seen as a woman that was basically caught in adultery which the consequences would yield to her being publicly exposed and even to the point of being stoned to death right so that's the reality that we're working with here so joseph being a righteous man who wanted to do the right thing as any uh you know jewish man in his right mind would do is to distance himself from this kind of shame right so he's thought about you know maybe i would divorce her Maybe I'll divorce her in order to maintain my own purity. After all, this is what, uh, this would have been the right thing to do, the religious thing to do, right? But here's the twist to the story. See, in the tension between the authority of his ruler and the authority of his religion, a different kind of authority kind of entered the scene in this very moment. A kind of authority that had actually been silent for a long time. What do I mean by that? You see, before the stories of the New Testament started to unfold, God had actually been silent to his people for 400 years. You guys know that? through the last prophet. And when God finally opened his mouth to speak in this moment, Joseph came directly under the authority of God himself. No longer was he just bound by the authority of his ruler or his religion, but he came under the direct authority of God himself. So as he was thinking about what to do, God spoke and gave him some very clear instructions, right? One, take Mary home as your wife right? Two, through the prophets, right, he said that the virgin will give birth to a son, right? And three, to give this child the name Jesus. If you think about that, these are really weird instructions. It's really weird instructions. We only, like, I think we've been desensitized to that because we're so familiar with the Christmas story, but these are weird things for God to ask Joseph to do. Why do I mean that? One, to marry her still, to marry that woman still, what would people think I mean, think about this kind of shame-based culture that many of us come from, right? To be instructed to still marry somebody who is, like, uh, presumably caught in adultery. What would people think, right? Two, it doesn't take a genius to know that virgins can't give birth. Virgins can't give birth, right? Like, so if that's the story I'm supposed to go and tell, who's going to believe me, right? Virgins can't give birth. And three... Why the name Jesus, right? The instruction to give the child the name Jesus. Why the name Jesus? You guys know that the name Jesus specifically means to rescue or to deliver? So the question then, if you're a practical kind of person, is that how is a tiny and helpless little baby going to rescue anything? These are really weird instructions that God gave him, right? But regardless of that, how did Joseph respond? If you look at verses 24 and 25 in the Matthew account, you will see that he actually acted in complete obedience, right? It says that when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. One, he took Mary home as his wife, but two, he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. So Mary was still a virgin, right? And three, he gave him the name Jesus. Gave him the name Jesus. So what I do not want you to miss here. Is that when God spoke, Joseph recognized whose voice it was and whose authority he was ultimately under. And as he chose, and he chose to act in total obedience to that authority over anything else. And choosing to walk in obedience to God's authority would now cost him almost everything. It meant that he would now need to go and cho- he and it means that he would now have to go and choose to be disobedient to some of the other authorities. You see, he would disobey the expectations of his religion when he takes Mary home as his wife. He would be now, his choice would now deem him as that guy who married that woman, that scandalous woman. His yes to God means that he would now perhaps spend the rest of his life being misunderstood by his very own community of people. You see, to walk in obedience to God also means that Joseph would now have to defy his rulers, the authorities of his rulers. You see, later on, if you keep reading the story, you will find that in this story later on, there's this local king named Herod, right, who felt threatened and issued this mandate for all the little boys to be killed in this town. And in that moment, Joseph would now actually have to act out in civil disobedience and take Mary and Jesus and became refugees seeking asylum in a foreign land. His yes to God meant that he would now break the law because the laws that had been placed, put in place by the governing authority of the time had become unjust. You see, Joseph was clearly a man under authority, but when push comes to shove, living in the tension between these two competing kingdom values, Joseph turned his ear to the Lord, and the Lord called him to do the unexpected, to break the laws of the land and to break all the rules at church. Whoa. See, despite what his religious convictions were telling him and the laws of the empires were requiring him, Joseph submitted to God's authority and his life became a complete mess so that he could now prepare the way for the one who was coming to clean up all of humanity's mess. Whose authority will you live under? Maybe you're here this morning as somebody who's been, I don't know, seeking to uh, live carefully as a good law-abiding citizen to the empire that you are a part of or maybe you're somebody who's at church this morning who is carefully observing all of your convictions as a religious person but my question for you is what if God wanted more than that what if God wanted more out of you and what if saying yes to God means that you will actually have to challenge the status quo What if saying yes to God meant that you will actually be misunderstood by the very people that are closest to you? You see, in this world of competing kingdoms and rulers and principalities, whose authority will you ultimately come to live under? Especially when the world around us and the religion that we grew up around are setting certain types of expectations over our life, and yet God is calling us into something that's completely different and something that's completely radical well, we still have the same kind of boldness that Joseph had in this story: to stand at odds against the world in order to be obedient to Jesus. So that was the first question. We're going to have a chance to think more about that. The second question I want to move us into uh, is this, right? Um, so not only do we see that Jesus uh, or not only do we see that Joseph was a man under authority, we also see that Joseph was a man who had a plan. Right? Joseph was a man who had a plan. So the second question I have for you is, where are your plans leading you? Where are your plans leading you? Now, you see, in this story, Joseph was essentially facing a crisis. Right? He was facing a crisis while uh, well, his unwedded fiancé is pregnant. Right? That's a big no-no culturally. Right? Now, what you should know that will make this all the more sta- scandalous is if you knew what kind of a place Nazareth was. Now, Nazareth was not really any kind of uh, a place that, that is celebrated to, uh, if you're from there. Like, nobody's from Nazareth. Nobody important is from Nazareth right? There's these different passages that you see, like people questioning, like, can anything good come from Nazareth? There's the reason why there's that sentiment is because Nazareth is nothing more than just a small transient town where a lot of people uh, pass through in order to get to more important places. And it's uh, geographically located in a place where a lot of ancient sailors and merchants would pass through this place called Nazareth after spending a long time uh, journeying out at sea. And these sailors and merchants will come to this place called Nazareth to look for a good meal and to spend a good night, if you know what I mean. It almost kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, when I was in college and I used to take these road trips back home during breaks, driving all the way from North Carolina back to Chicago. And uh, I would, like, sometimes have to pull off on random, uh, you know, exits to get gas. And there would be, like, these random, like, creepy truck stops where – there's like, you know, there, like, there's not a whole lot there, right? It's just like a creepy truck stop, there's a gas station, and then there's like this uh, neon-lit building off to the side where you know some funny business is happening, right? That's the kind of place Nazareth was, right? So how does that now color the whole situation where you have a teenage girl being found pregnant all of a sudden here in a place called Nazareth? So... As Matthew is writing this uh, narrative, right, he says that Joseph was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. I think this was a totally normal response, probably what, if, what I would have thought of too, right? Uh, I think for anybody who finds themselves in a moment of crisis, it's normal to start formulating a plan, especially when that crisis involves your whole family or your whole community. What do I mean by that? You see, in, in ancient Jewish cultures like this, as are in most non-Western cultures today, uh, everything about who we are and what we do are guided by sort of this uh, communal or collect- collectivistic uh, value, as opposed to sort of a Western individualism, right? So for Mary and Joseph to be pledged to be married to each other, it's not like there were just a couple of kids who met each other in college and decided to get hitched, right? More, more than likely, uh, this arrangement of their marriage would have been an ongoing process that had happened for years between both parties of the family. So for Mary to come in the days leading up to their long-awaited wedding to say, hey, I'm pregnant... This would have been just about as devastating as it can be imagined in a small-town community like Nazareth. So because of all this, Joseph basically had to decide, how much do I want to be associated with all this nonsense, right? So he began to formulate a plan in his mind. And what was the plan? Well, two parts, right? One is, well, I'm going to call off this engagement. I'm going to divorce from this situation, right? But two, I'm going to do it quietly because I want to help Mary save face. I still want to kind of protect her from, from shame somehow, right? Honestly, I think it's, you know, like, I, I'm kind of a fan of Joseph here right, right now. Like, you know, to be fair to him, like, he's kind of making an honorable decision here that's guided by not only his faith but also his integrity, right? Because of his faith, as a religious man, his faith is telling him that the right thing to do is to divorce yourself from this situation in order to maintain your purity, Right? But his, as a man of integrity, he also cared about the consequences that Mary would face, and he didn't want, make, he didn't want to make a scene, uh, so to speak. Right? So if you were to ask me, this was not a bad plan at all. Right? It's not like he decided that uh, I'm going to cover this up, and we're just going like, to get married real quick so that people don't like, have any questions. Right? It doesn't look questionable. Right? It's not like he did the opposite. It's not like he got mad. He's like, oh, Mary, you're going to do me like this? I'm going to go and like, just like, sleep with anybody I could find out there to get even, right? He didn't do either of those, right? No, Joseph's plan actually sought out, if you paid attention to what he was doing, Joseph's plans actually sought out both justice and mercy. What do I mean by that? He was seeking justice because he wanted to do the right thing when wrong had been done. And he wanted to seek mercy because he wanted to protect this poor woman from the wrath that she would have faced because of her presumptive promiscuity. And he was still concerned about extending her the compassion that she didn't seemingly deserve. So essentially Joseph's plan was to seek justice and mercy that's guided by his faith and his integrity. That's a pretty brilliant plan. Like that's not a simple thing to just come up with, right? But here's the other twist. The story. You guys ready for this? Here's the other twist of the story. Again, God wanted more than just Joseph. God wanted more than just jo, than, than Joseph's brilliant plan. God wanted to give Joseph a new plan that didn't seem to actually make any sense. A plan that would be messy, that would be radical, that would be full of risks and dangers, and a plan that would feel ultimately more like a burden. A plan from God. God's plan felt more like a burden because now it would have required Joseph to now have to carry Mary's shame as his own. God's plan feels more like a burden because now it would have to require Joseph to take in a child that was not his own and to raise him, to care for him, and to love him as his own. And ultimately, God's plan feels like a burden because it would require Joseph to now have to uproot from a life full of brilliant plans and trade it for a treacherous journey that is fully exposed. To dangers and uncertainties. What you need to remember is this it's not that Joseph didn't have a good plan. It's not that Joseph didn't have a good plan. It's not that he had the wrong plan or that his plans were ungodly. No, actually, quite the opposite. Joseph might have actually had the best plan. Joseph might have had the best plan, following his faith and his integrity to seek out justice and mercy. So then why, why would this God ask him to even scrap this plan? See, God asked Joseph to scrap this plan of seeking justice and mercy in that moment so that God could actually give him a new plan where this son that he is now called to raise will actually bring justice and mercy to the whole world. To the whole world. You know, one of my favorite inspirational sports movies, if you're into those, is is a Disney movie that came out a little over a decade ago called Miracle. Uh, It's on Netflix right now if you want to check it out. It's not the most ethnically diverse representation that Disney has, but it's based on a true historical event. And in this story, it's just Mostly white people, so, right? Uh, but it's cool, right? So this, this is a, a true story uh, from the, um, it's so, so Miracle is a true story based on the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team uh, that carried out what has historically become known as the Miracle on Ice. You guys familiar with that? Some of you guys who've been around a little bit longer, right? Uh, so it's a story about when Team USA coming in as underdog, having never been able to defeat, uh, kind of the, the, the major powers of, of hockey in the world, finally was able, at, uh, at the 1980s Winter Olympics, was able to beat the Soviet Union's uh, team uh, in one of the biggest kind of upsets in Olympic sports history. right? And there's this one particular scene that I love about this movie is when the, the coach, the head coach, his name is Herb Brooks, uh, when he was putting together a team full of basically college kids, college-age men, college players, uh, and, uh, and as this was during the beginning of the movie, and he had called all these college players to come, and they were having this, uh, basically Olympic trials. They were trying out to try to make a spot on the team, and uh, they were supposed to be there for a whole week, and, uh, but, but, but kind of the upset of that moment is that at the end of the very first day of the tryouts, uh, Coach, uh, Coach Herb, uh, his name's Herb, he already had kind of his first round of a uh, final roster uh, prepared and he was ready to send everybody else home right and there was this one scene where he hands a piece of paper to his assistant coach named Craig and Craig was looking through it and like after finding out that this is like his, his roster he's like wait a minute that's the roster that's the final roster you're you're kidding me right and he said that that you know this is this is our first day herb we got a week of this stuff Right? And as Craig continued to look down the list, he saw that some of the people that he thought would surely make the team are not on the list. So he says to Herb, he's like, he's like and, 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 and you're missing some of the best players. To which Herb responds with one of the most profound statements in the entire movie, which perhaps I think is one of the very reasons that sets him apart as the one who would lead this team to final, his, uh, final victory. What did he say? He says, I'm not looking for the best players, Craig. I'm looking for the right ones not looking for the best players. I'm looking for the right ones. So he didn't necessarily get to take the best all-star roster to the Olympics. He took a team. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't get to take the best players to the games that year, but he took the right ones that were carefully chosen, who were, carefully, who were specifically made specifically for that moment. And in time, he turned these group of young men into the best team in the world. So back to my question, where are your plans leading you? At the beginning of my talk this morning, I said, uh, you know, I asked you guys to think about your hopes, your dreams, your plans, uh, your devotions, your moral values. So my question is, uh, are those the very best plans that you have for your life? Maybe they are. I don't know. I wouldn't know. That's between you and Jesus, right? Maybe they are the best plans that you have, or maybe they are the best plans that you can come up with. And they might even be fully lined up with very godly reasons. But my question is, what if God wants to do more with your life than your very best plans? And what if doing more means that you'll have to first be willing to scrap those plans? Would you be willing to consider letting God radically change your plans for your life? So we talked about the question of whose authority will you live under? And we talked about where your plans are leading you. And this leads me now to my third and final question for us this morning. And that is this. Joseph was a man whom God called by name. So the question is, by what name will you be known? By what name will you be known? See, in the beginning, I mentioned that our, in our passages uh, this morning, uh, both passages began with a title and a character, right? Essentially, they both began with the name, Of somebody, right? In the Luke account, it began with Caesar Augustus. And in the Matthew account, it began with Jesus the Messiah. Right? Here's the final twist for you from from the messages this morning. Here's the final twist, right? These two names, these two names represent the two competing kingdoms that will constantly be fighting over your life in this lifetime. And how you will go down in history actually depends on who wins the thrones of your heart. Is it going to be a ruler and emperor who conquered much of the world and was revered by history as a god? Or is it going to be a quiet and suffering servant whose very mission to the world was to come and to die for it? You know, I think it was sometime last year I was sitting around at home watching TV with my wife, Brooke, where this random thought just came to my mind. I have a lot of random thoughts, and then that causes me to go on this long journey of, like, looking up, like, encyclopedia articles to find out why. Um, the, the, the way to cheat the system is to uh, befriend uh, Wikipedia. You can, like, come across as a really smart person without trying too hard. But that's a, that's a free one. That's besides the point. But anyway, I was thinking, I was sitting around, and I was, like, just I had this random thought, right? I started thinking about particularly the names of the 12 months that we have on the, on the Western calendar, uh, and it occurred to me that particularly the names of the 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12 months do not make any sense at all. Some of you guys are like, huh? Like, well, check this out, right? When you, when you think about September, October, November, and December, I don't know if you guys ever noticed this, but the prefixes for those words, right, septum, octo, novem, and decem, those are Latin prefixes for the numbers 7, 8, 9, and 10. Have you guys ever noticed that before? So, how is it that the seven, eight, nine, and 10 numbers are actually the names now for the ninth, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth months? Some of you guys are like, whoa, I never thought about that, right? You guys know why? Does anybody know? Has anybody looked that up before? So, the reason that being, this is super interesting. It turns out that at one point in our history, there were only 10 months on the, on the, on the standard calendar, but later on, July and August were added into the calendar july was added to commemorate julius caesar and august was added to commemorate who (laughs) augustus caesar right augustus caesar this very same um caesar augustus that we read about in the bible today that we live one month every year under his name and we don't even think about it that's crazy right the reason why I want to point this out is because there is something extremely seductive with the way in which the world tempts us to make a name for ourselves, to leave our mark in this world, to be great, to be successful, to conquer, and to seize, to ultimately find the Caesar Augustuses within each and every one of us. And in contrast, the way of, the Je- of Jesus the Messiah was one that was quiet, was one that was humble, and was one that ultimately culminated to a humiliating death By torture. Why? So that we, that humanity, might have a chance to be reconciled to the father who actually sent him. Here's the difference between these two. Between these two kingdoms. In Caesar Augustus' kingdom, we fight and we strive to live like its king. And we are wooed by all the splendors and all the glories of his kingdom and his empire. But just like this very census that he had issued in the Bible... Citizens of this kingdom are reduced to nothing more than just a number. Mary and Joseph were nothing more than just a number. Jesus' name wasn't even mentioned in that account, not at least until very much later in the passage. In contrast, in Jesus' Messiah's kingdom, God comes to ordinary people and calls them by name so that his mission of coming to die for the world can actually be ushered in by the very people he came to save. See, in the Matthew account, we see that as the Holy Spirit was orchestrating the grand entrance of God into this world, he came and intimately called a peasant Jewish boy by his name. And he said, Joseph, son of David. That's another thing that like, could just gloss over us if we don't pay attention to. Why did he name David in this particular moment? We see that David is part of his lineage, right? But it's not his direct father. If you look at the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 1 of Matthew, you'll see that Joseph's immediate father is actually a man by the name Jacob. So why did he say Joseph, son of David? I think perhaps this reference to David here was a reference to yet another unexpected king who was chosen out of the least of his brothers to go and face a giant. There's something about the legacy in which this is the family Joseph comes from. That was significant here, and not only that, we see that there's actually a repetition with the theme of name in this passage in the Matthew account. Right? Not only was Joseph called by name, but he was specifically instructed by God to give the name Jesus to the boy, and he also spoke through the prophets saying that they will call him Emmanuel. That's a lot of repetition with the theme of name, right? Now, only makes sense because the act of naming isn't just an ordinary job. Do you guys know that? Like, I think for many of us that come from East Asian backgrounds, this, this is something that's significant. Like, the, our names oftentimes are actually a gift given to us by our fathers. And they're not necessarily just a name that already exists somewhere that we like the sound of and we get ascribed to. Uh, but it's a, it's, a, it's a name that carries with the hopes and the dreams that they have for our lives, Right? If you think about one of the first things that God did in Genesis, right, one of the first things that God instructed Adam and Eve to do was to do what? It was to name. To name things, right? Because to, the act of naming actually brings order to formlessness, and it gives meaning to meaninglessness. The act of naming is a unique trait that sets us apart from animals. And God uses the act of naming in the most intentional way here. So back to the question that I have for us. By what name will you be known? See, Joseph was a man whom God called by name. And by saying yes to God, Joseph went down in history the humble and quiet way. Not to be mentioned much more in Scripture. And almost forgotten by history, if we're honest. Right? Almost forgotten by history. What do I mean by that? If you talk to most biblical scholars, they will tell you, that uh, most would agree that Joseph had most likely died during Jesus' adolescence. So what this means is that although Joseph chose to live in obedience to all that God had commanded here, he never got to live to see the full fulfillment of what this son that he was going to raise was going to do for the world. What a contrast is that compared to Caesar Augustus, whose namesake we live under every summer in memory of. So by what name will you be known? Will you be remembered as a Caesar Augustus or will you be remembered as a Joseph who submits to the ways of this quiet and humble baby king even without the promise of seeing its fulfillment in this lifetime? You see, throughout history, um, followers of this same baby king has, have lived out uh, this kind of posture in historically pivotal moments. I'm going to close our time by telling this story. In 1930, right, that's almost 90 years ago, there was a 24-year-old young man, seminary student, by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you guys may have heard of him before. Some of you guys may have learned about him in history class, right? But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a 24-year-old man from Germany. He was too young to be ordained to be a minister. So he came over to the United States to study at Union uh, Theological Seminary in New York, uh, hoping to become a theologian one day. Now, during his time in the U.S., let's just say that he was sort of unimpressed by the curriculum that was offered. Uh, He was unimpressed by the academics that was made available to him. Uh, But he didn't waste his time here. His time didn't go to waste, right? Because during the time here, he got to befriend a fellow seminarian by the name of Frank Fisher, who was a a fellow classmate who happens to be black and who happens to uh, introduce him to the uh, traditional black American church. And it was during this time that he actually fell in love with the black American church because it was during this time where he got to, he got to hear the gospel being preached, uh, the gospel of justice, where he got to hear the gospel being preached, the gospel of reconciliation. And it was during this time where he began to develop this deep concern for the complacency of the church and our ineptitude towards those who are suffering on the margins. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And he said that it was during this time that he began to see things from below. What he meant is that he began to see things from the perspectives from those who had long suffered oppression. And these were the values that he got to take with him back to Germany when Germany was about to make its mark in history. Several years later, when World War II in in, in Europe was becoming imminent, uh, Bonhoeffer, was back in Germany and actively working in resistance against the Nazi regime. And after his refusal to swear allegiance to Hitler, obviously his safety was compromised, right? And in 1939, there was an opportunity uh, at the invitation of his old seminary union to come back over to the United States for some teaching assignments, and he initially came, right? And he came over, but after being here for a little bit of time he started feeling this inner turmoil and he began to regret his decision to come over back over to the United States and in a letter that he wrote to his old professor who had invited him he said this listen to this carefully in a letter he wrote I have come to the conclusion that I made a mistake in coming to America I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the uh, the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. So on the last scheduled steamboat uh, to cross the Atlantic uh, before the war, he returned to Germany. And after his return in Germany, he was constantly harassed and interrogated and harassed and interrogated by the Nazi party until his eventual arrest uh, and imprisonment in 1943. And after being uh, uh, imprisoned for two years, in the spring of 1945, he was secretly moved from a military prison to a place called Flossenbürg concentration camp. And it was there where he was trialed and he was condemned and on April 9th of 1945 he was executed by hanging just 2 weeks before US troops came and liberated that camp and just 1 month before Germany surrendered the war. You know some of us might look at his life and say what a life wasted. If he would have just stayed in the United States, he would have been protected, he would have been saved. Some of us might even say that that would have been the better plan. That the U.S., the authorities in the U.S. could have protected him. But you see what Dietrich Bonhoeffer did that day, or in that moment of his life, was that he said the same kind of yes to God that Joseph has said to God in this story. He said that in his yes... Uh, meant that um, he would deliberately step out from safety and into risk because the God who called him by name wanted more out of his life. And and his yes meant that. He said yes without even the promise of ever seeing the liberation that he longed to see for his people. You see, to many people, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would, would, would only be just another name in the history books, just like how Joseph would be just another name in the more familiar versions of our Christmas stories. But in reality, their obedience, their humble obedience to God actually changed the world. And his yes prepared the table for the greatest sacrifice that's about to take place in the world. So in closing, I just want to say this. I want to remind us of those questions, right? Whose authority do we live under? Where are plans leading us? And by what name will we be known? I think this morning, Jesus wants to ask us and invite us into considering that. Um, Will we be willing to submit our very best plans to be under his authority? And will we perhaps allow him to give us a new name in the areas of our life where we need it? So what are ways that we can do that? To step out of our comfort and our security and into risks and uncertainty, especially in in today's political climate, What are ways for us to be challenged to challenge the status quo so that we can continue to bring this provocative and scandalous message of hope in the gospel to change the world? My prayer is that this week uh, we will get to reflect on what needs to be changed and that we will get the chance to actually reorient our lives uh, to live into this reality. Can I pray for us? Jesus, we thank you so much for... This uh, just humble and easy-to-gloss-over story of just a baby being born in a peasant family in an insignificant time. But, Lord, we see how much intentionality you have put into your humble entrance into the world. And as the world around us continues to tempt us, to pull us, to call us, to be seduced to its ways, to seek greatness, to seek success. Lord, would you continue to remind us of your humility and would you continue to call us to boldly say yes to you, even if those yeses means that uh, people won't understand, even if those yeses means that uh, our whole life will be messed up and changed. Would you give us the boldness to say, to know that this life here is nothing but a a breath and that we long for our eternity with you that is going to be so much more rewarding than anything that we can chase after here in this world. So we present ourselves humbly before your presence and ask you to teach us your ways, teach us the quiet and humble ways that is modeled perfectly by your Son, Pray all of these things and ask for all of these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.